You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Uh, We're already in uh, the second week of a war, and at the time that I'm uh, recording this uh, broadcast, the Israeli army has not yet taken the initiative, but I want to say a few things. The I just read an article by a professor at the uh, Bessa Institute. His name is Eitan Shamir, and he brought out a few things that I think is important. I want to share what I learned with the listeners. In the Middle East, there is no place for the weak. Israel has attempted to reach agreement with Hamas, all of which disintegrated because they made Israel appear weak. Deterrence has completely collapsed, and Hamas allowed itself to embark on an immensely vicious and destructive campaign against Israel precisely because it it knew that Others would inevitably press Israel not to react to this unspeakable provocation. Hamas could not care less what the consequences of its attack on Israel be on the Palestinians in Gaza. As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. The suffering of the Palestinians serves the interests of Hamas. The only thing that threatens Hamas is destruction of its military capabilities and its loss of control over Gaza. So right now, Israel has an urgent necessity, as a an imperative. Israel must destroy Hamas's military capabilities and bring about the collapse of Hamas authority in Gaza. Now it's important, and this was pointed out by by uh, uh, by Professor Shamir. It's important to understand the broader implications of this. What I'm saying, first of all, some things will not change. The principle of deterrence was and will continue to be the most central and fundamental principle in the Israeli security perception. The basic geostrategic situation in the Middle East will not change after this war. Even if Israel achieves all its objectives, Israel cannot decisively feed all its enemies and bring our enemies to the point they'll cease to fight. That's what happened at the end of World War II, and that's not going to happen here. Throughout the history of the state of Israel, the meaning of the principle of deterrence was the removal of an immediate threat to the country and the exacting of heavy price from the other side in order to restore and gradually strengthen deterrence. This is called, by the way, cumulative deterrence. For example, in a six-day war, the government decided to take military action that will liberate Israel from the strengthening and surrounding threat. This was translated into the mission of the Israeli army. The, uh, the purpose of the action of the Israeli Air Force will destroy the Egyptian Air Force and most of the enemy's forces in the Sinai. 
As Israel is not capable of defeating or entirely subduing nations or states or organizations, it was understood that it would have to live by the sword for many years. Therefore, the Israeli goal was, was and will continue to be to deter its enemies in order to decrease the intervals between wars and, in general, try to avoid them as much as possible. In other words, Israel, the intention of Israel, for example, cannot be to conquer or destroy Egypt. That, doesn't, that can't happen. The idea is to turn the enemies and, and increase the intervals between wars. Now, what happened on October 7th was that the Israeli deterrence against Hamas failed. As the, we had the Israel relied, over relied on deterrence and warning. Israel suffered a severe defeat in terms of casualties and property losses. The enemy, the enemy, enemy penetrated Israel, captured areas, decimated populations, committed acts of inhuman savagery, savagery of many Israeli civilians. They had held the towns for a significant number of hours. While security forces managed to regain control of the territories, that achievement was not sufficient to restore deterrence. Even a severe bombing of Gaza is not enough. From Hamas's perspective, as well as the parts of the Arab Muslim world in general, the suffering of suffering of Gaza's residents as a small price to pay for the historic achievement that has Hamas has obtained against Israel. Hamas is a religious political movement that is likely impossible to completely eradicate. However, it can be significantly reduced in terms of the threat it poses in specific locations like Gaza. The only thing that truly threatens and determines Hamas is the loss of its control over Gaza and loss of its military assets. These two are closely linked because military assets ensure its control. But a more significant point must be understood. Hamas has achieved one of the most significant accomplishments an Arab resistance to get this, against the Zionist project since the fall of Gush Etzion in the old city of Jerusalem back in, the, in 1948. That achievement is more significant than the gains made during the Egyptians in, in, attack in October 1973. However, briefly, had Hamas succeeded in claiming several cities and towns inside the state of Israel that are inhabited by Jews, and they conducted brutal, brutal massacres on a par with the worst carnage since the Holocaust. In so doing, Hamas has significantly undermined the sense of security of Jewish Israelis. So, the implication is challenging. If the threat in Gaza is not removed and the war ends, the residents of the border areas will not return to their homes, and this applies to other residents of Israel as well. Due to the shock of Hamas's achievement, 
Israel was forced to evacuate Lebanese border settlements despite the relatively low level of conflict in that area compared to what happened in the Gaza border. For the first time since the establishment of the state, Arab resistance led to displacement of Jews from areas within Israel's sovereign territory, and it might even be permanent. This is an unprecedented achievement for Israel's enemies. In Israel, among the Jewish diaspora, there are people who wonder if Israel can continue to exist under certain circumstances. What happened now can be compared to what happened in October 1973. Consider in June 1967, it operated a six-day war before that war, Israelis felt a growing sense of encirclement as Arab armies massed on their borders. Many feared it might be the end of Israel. Israel's decisive victory in 1967, in which the our IDF defeated Arab armies, not only prevented further rounds of conflict, but it also sent a clear message that Israel was a strong nation it would exact a heavy price than those who rose against it. That restored a sense of security for Israelis. Now, now that that is why there are several clear reasons to defeat Hamas completely. First, to in, or, in order to ensure the return of Israeli citizens to their homes, the threat must be completely removed and the sense of security restored. Second, if Israel were to end the war without destroying the Hamas region in Gaza and its military capabilities, it would be seen as a success for Hamas that would serve as a model and inspiration for other radical actors in the region who seek the elimination of Israel. And there's another important consideration. Israel's weakness could also affect the emerging relationships between Israel and the moderate Arab states that have come to the conclusion that Israel has established finished product in the Middle East and is Israel here, Israel is here and strong and it's better to befriend Israel than to fight against it. The peace agreements Israel has achieved did not result from revolutions but from the recognition by these Arab states that Israel is strong and is here to say. The, uh, thus, the eradication of the Hamas threat is not only solely about Israel's immediate security, but all about but about the regional stability and the perception of Israel in the broader Middle East. So right now, all eyes are now on Israel. If Israel can defeat Hamas and dismantle its military capabilities, it will prove its ability to deliver the only punishment possible for the destruction of, of deterrence. The course of such an operation against Israel must be clear to everyone, and destruction of the organization or regime that committed an attack must be done. Israel, for its part, can begin the process of rehabilitating the communities around the Gaza Strip, ensuring a reasonable level of security for its residents. Unfortunately, acts of terror will always occur. It's important to emphasize not only Israel's adversaries, but also those regional actors who have reconciled with Israel are watching the outcome. 
there had certain assumptions about ISIS's military strength and capabilities. There is no room in the Middle East for weakness. This war might, be not, might not be existential in the immediate sense of threat to conquer all of Israel's territory, but is certainly existential in the long-term sense of proving Israel's ability to continue to exist in this region. The, the uh, Israel was hit. If Israel does not demonstrate a determination to rebuild and strengthen the foundations, Israel may lose the friendship of the Arab states and Israel might be crumble. We cannot allow that to happen. These are the facts on the ground. Incidentally, uh, slightly another subject, but I think worth mentioning. Uh, there was an, a, an editorial this week in the Jerusalem Post, and I want to uh, repeat some of what it said because I think it's important. The country is going through an extraordinarily challenging time. Right now, there is some 1,400 dead, 4,000 wounded, and two pe 200 people have been abducted at this moment. No one can remain unaffected by what happened on October 7th. The suffering inflicted on the residents of these communities, the army bases, and the young people at the music festival is still being revealed. There is, but beyond those who suffered the, or witnessed what happened, all citizens of Israel have been affected and are suffering from trauma. This is compounded by the massive rocket attacks launched on wise area, wide areas of the country. And for many, it's also the worry for the welfare of soldiers, loved ones who are serving on the front lines. More than 10 of my grandchildren are serving now in this war. Now, in the, the, from, the, from this depth of this horror, something positive has emerged. What is that? That is a feeling of national solidarity and togetherness that is almost palpable. It's omnipresent. Israel took a beating, but Israel is bouncing back with the help of its characteristic resilience. It is no secret, it's no secret that uh, uh, there were, before this war started, there were unprecedented divisions in Israeli society during the first 10 months of this year. This was based on the government's judicial reform plan and the response to it. Throughout the country, during the first 10 months of this year, family members and friends and colleagues even stopped talking to each other, unable to overcome the divide over the, the proposed change in the judicial plan. There were demonstrations all the time, there were strikes, demonstrators blocked streets. The country to a, came to, really came to a standstill. There were pilots and reservists of even elite units who announced the refusal to serve as a protest measure. Now, during that, those 10 months, there is no doubt that the country was weakened. 
So as a result, Israel's enemies like Hamas and Hezbollah and the Iranians, they gloated at the sight of what was happening in Israel. However, they misjudged, and to a certain extent, we ourselves misjudged the strength of the Israeli character. Facing an, an enemy, the country quickly pulled together and showed the same spirit that's been displayed during previous wars and other hardships. Reservists answered a call to serve with many rushing home from abroad. My own granddaughter came back from Switzerland. She was on vacation there, and she was, uh, the Israeli government helped her uh, arrange uh, to get on an LR plane to come back. So many soldiers, former soldiers, begged to be called up that the, the army really had to turn some away. Pilots dropped their political differences, mobilized in mosques with at least one airbase commander is saying there were more than 100% turnout. People opened their homes and hearts to perfect strangers who required a refuge from the rockets. Volunteer groups formed to supply food, clothing, and toys to the displaced families. Soldiers were bombarded with so much food and equipment from civilian well-wishers that it became a butt of jokes. Joke. By the way, there are non-kosher restaurants in Tel Aviv who turned themselves into kosher restaurants last week so that religious soldiers could eat there. It's unbelievable. So the fact remains, we're in the middle of a war, nobody knows what lies ahead, and no, nobody can predict the course that the war will take. But however, we know one thing that we have learned in the last two weeks. We need to remain united and to face this together. Soldiers on the front lines watch each other's backs and serve as one, regardless of any political, religious, or social differences they have. In the same way as our soldiers are doing, taking care of each other, the ordinary citizens on the home front must continue to be strong and united and take care of each other. That is the lesson to be learned from the, law, the war we are now undergoing. At the moment of this broadcast, we have no idea how long the war will be or what the cost will be. The only good thing coming out of this war so far is that we are all together, and hopefully this will last. We have to learn from, the, from this war what it means to be a nation, to be one people. And, and hopefully we will come out of this victorious with a minimum loss and be a better people altogether. I'll be back after the break. You think you can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. The uh, listeners know that I don't generally deal with 
news analysis, but these are unusual times, and although I'm certainly not an expert, I'd like to say a few words. I think that um, from what I read, and I, I want to share my thoughts, Hamas's surprise attack fundamentally changed Israel's strategic situation. The premises that are based on past events are simply no longer applicable to the new situation. And what we really need now is both strategic and moral clarity. One of these things we must do is to focus on the assessment of what's happening and the limitations on Israel's ability to conduct military operations. I am making this uh, recording on Monday night, and uh, Israel has not made a major uh, invasion of the uh, Gaza area, but there are skirmishes all along the line, and and the Air Force is bombing almost day and night. First, we have to talk about the, uh, the nature of the enemy. Hamas has revealed its true face. It's not just a terrorist organization. It's an entity that conducts crimes against humanity and is committed to the genocide of the Jewish people. The, uh, that is what Hamas is. This being the case, Israel has both the current circumstances and historical experience to justify destroying that organization's ability to conduct terrorism and to bring our leaders, their leaders to justice because of their genocidal intentions. This is a justifiable war of self-defense such has not been seen since the end of World War II. The second uh, character is the approach to the United States. The leadership there has a clear understanding of the nature of the enemy and the context of the threat. For them, this is what you would call a 9-11 moment. The historical commitment of the United States in the existence of Israel was established really just for such moments. While not everyone in the polarized American society agrees, there's no doubt that the mainstream in the United States supports Israel, with President Biden and Secretary of State Blinken at the forefront committed to Israel's security. The American commitment to defense to the defense of war to destroy Hamas's capability is so high that the United States has made the unprecedented moves of deploying forces in a threatening and aggressive posture here in the Middle East against the Hezbollah and other members of the coalition with the Iranians in order to deter them from interfering interfering with what's happening here. It's interesting, right now, two major American um, aircraft carriers are approaching Israel, one in the Indian Ocean, 
the other in the Mediterranean Sea. The political-military leadership of the United States are serving as top advisors to the Israeli political and security leadership and has guided them in the making of decisions that were required to eliminate Hamas. Another parameter is the scope of the conflict. Iran and Hezbollah have been closely monitoring the miscalculation displayed by the Hamas leadership in Gaza over the course of the surprise attack. They are not willing to weigh strategic assets that exist primarily to protect their own survival. They're not interested in saving Hamas, they're interested in saving themselves, especially when there's an American threat looming over them. In this situation, decisive action to destroy Hamas's capabilities will deter Iran and Hezbollah from interfering in the conflict. The anticipated demonstration of strength by the Israeli army against Hamas and Gaza, which is coming up soon, should pretty much cool their eagerness to test Israel's capabilities, especially when it comes to risking their, their senior leadership. Another parameter is the regional situation. Moderate Arab states, including Saudi Arabia and Jordan and Egypt and others, express public disagreement with Israel's approach for reasons of internal security and public opinion in their countries. They have a genuine concerns about the actions that will be required. However, a demonstration of Israel's military strength and the rehabilitation of Israel's image after the terrible surprise attack will bolster the national security of these other Arab states, which rely on Israel's proactive approach to regional threats as part of their defensive posture. Therefore, Despite the public statements, they, I'm sure they support a decisive outcome over Hamas by Israel. Another parameter is the international public arena. The war in Ukraine caused shockwaves in Western public opinion, especially in Western Europe. The concept of a war of conquest and a destruction was suddenly returned to their consciousness by what Russia did to the Ukraine. Europeans, I believe, realized they could once again find themselves in a the reality they thought had left behind after World War II. In nine democratic states like China and Russia, humanitarian issues are viewed through the lens of national interest. The near total international indifference to the mass displacement of the Armenian population by just by Azerbaijan just a few weeks ago, it's hardly mentioned in the papers. Nobody cares about the Armenian population being displaced in Azerbaijan. It's a clear reflection of prevailing global apathy toward military actions that are anything less than genocidal. Although Israel has always been singled out negatively and discriminated against in terms of the use of force and its right to defend itself, the connection between the updated world mindset 
And the genocide, of course, of Hamas changes the entire picture. There's, there's also an economic uh, aspect here. Israel's economy would be significantly impacted by the war. Today, as I'm making this program, the uh, there are over four Israeli uh, uh, shekels in a dollar. It's the lowest the shekel has been in years. It's expected to recover, and uh, it's done so after previous conflicts. Uh, there uh, are one factor that will facilitate the recovery process of the value of our money is the Israeli economy more stable than before the war. The division surrounding legal reform here in Israel that brought people into the streets against the government have weakened the Israeli economy, but a state of recovery from a painful war will lead to the acceleration of renewed growth. That's how I understand it. As a result of what I've said, there's no political hourglass in this war. The concern should be set aside, not the timing of the attack. We don't want to hamper the military campaign. We must destroy Hamas's military capabilities and end its genocide-driven rule. There are, there are some decisions that have to be made by Israel, and they include, as I understand it, the first is about determination. Israel needs to set the clear goal of defeating Hamas. It, it'll take a ground operation, and we have to stick with it until it's complete. Any hesitation or readiness to negotiate will be seen as a loss of strategic clarity. Unlike in previous conflicts, Israel's determination to achieve its military objectives increases its freedom of action rather than diminishes it. A final military resolution against Hamas, not just the superficial degradation of their capability, should be completed within a fairly short period of time. As far as the humanitarian response, as part of the military operation, I think that Israel must adhere to the requirements of the Fort Geneva Convention. They have all kind of rules about dealing with occupied territory. They have the people there have to have basic needs. Uh, Israel should work to return the Gazans who temporarily fled to their places of residence after they clear or they have to kick all the Gazans out of the area. Israel's much ensure the government facilities and institutions the, are, are, are important, and they don't want to destroy all these things in Gaza because Israel will then have to pick up the entire burden. My, I, my feeling is they just have to see to it that the Gazans go elsewhere, like northern Sinai. Then the question comes, and this is something I really am unqualified to really talk about, but what happens the day after? The I think you know, the United, Israel together with the United States and all kind of regional partners, Israel has to build mechanisms that will 
grant the civil services to the Gaza Strip, or even if the Gazans move over into northern Sinai. Israel doesn't have to pay for it, but they should help perhaps administer it. There's a, you, you, can't make, you can't make this mistake the Americans have made in Iraq of eliminating existing civil mechanisms just because some of the people are supporters of the enemy. The, the, I think that the Gazans should be kicked over into northern Sinai if the Egyptians will accept it, and Israel should assist uh, the, uh, the Egyptians in governing them. That's my own opinion. It's a, I'm, a, um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm an amateur, but it seems to me that's a way to do it. Because I'm sure the Egyptians don't want to take the whole burden themselves. And it should be, whatever happens afterwards, Israel should be, Israel's humanitarian actions should be seen. The, uh, the international community will, uh, will be watching us. And, you know, you know favor, favoring Israel can, is not necessarily something permanent. We have to make sure our behavior after this war is such that we don't lose a lot of support. And I, finally, I think also, and again, as I said in the beginning, I'm not an expert, but really, we have to engage those who have already indicated they want to really have peace with us. Because the, the key players in stabilizing in the, the, what's going to happen to the Gazan and Palestinians, I think the key players are going to be Saudi Arabia and Egypt. And Egypt has legitimate concerns because it doesn't want too many Palestinian refugees close to Egypt itself. Maybe having them near the border with Israel satisfied the Egyptians. Maybe, uh, maybe some, some kind of agreement can be re 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 made with Egypt. And uh, any kind of negotiation with Saudi Arabia about the future of Gaza and the people from Gaza would be part of any kind of intense discussions and uh, after the fighting is over. Now, and also, I think the scope of the conflict, Israel should avoid unnecessary adventures. Let the Americans take the lead in base, and it should be fully prepared to inflict a severe blow on, on uh, Hezbollah and on Hamas. But it has to be done in cooperation with the United States because um, Hezbollah in, uh, in uh, Lebanon might become as brazen as Hamas in Gaza, and that's also an American problem. Another thing is, how do you bring the leaders of Hamas to justice? The top leadership of Hamas, who are implicating crimes against humanity and genocide, I think that they should be brought to trial at a special court in Jerusalem. The, the, this is a moral centerpiece. The Jewish state must bring these people to justice. If we don't assassinate them, we have to bring them to the court of justice and that the world knows about their crimes. 
So these are some of my thoughts. Again, I'm not an expert, and I really haven't thought these things through, but I think on the, on the, on the surface, I think that these are the things that have to be done. So we'll see what the experts see, and we'll see what happens in the tide of battle. That also has a major influence on what happens. And finally, I want to discuss a subject that I was really happy to see. A substantial portion of the activity for Israel comes from the ultra-Orthodox Haredi community in organizations and volunteers, and even has been a, a desire on the part of hundreds of, of these people to enlist in the IDF and serve their country. I saw this on a Haredi television station. They're lining up at the uh, Army Absorption Center near Tel Aviv. Although even in wartime, tensions between non-Haredi Israelis and Haredim may not disappear, things are, looks like are changing. The, the, um, the, it's interesting. The terrible, terrible massacre last week gave rise to a miraculous mobilization. Civil society organizations, ordinary citizens have stepped up to contribute all possible ways. Haredi organizations and citizens have been among those reporting for action. They want to contribute to the war effort. By the way, this has gone well beyond the sacred work of the ultra-Orthodox Zaka group, which is a disaster victim identification organization with volunteers. It's been very difficult for them. The, 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 now, there a series of initiatives have come from within the Haredi community to encourage its members of Remember to sign up for reserve service. So it, these uh, these initiatives have, in a certain way, been adopted by the Army's Human Resources Department, which has issued an appeal to people in various occupations to join the cause. The uh, it, the truth of the matter is, even in routine times, Haredi society has a trend characterized by a high rate of volunteerism. But and we're now to to the now the willingness of Haredi people to undergo military training and participate in the country's defense, even in a limited way, is extraordinary. It's unprecedented. The last time there was some degree of Haredi mobilization was during the War of Independence 75 years ago. So essentially what's happening, Israel is now waging a second war of, the, of independence, and it should be a tipping point on many levels. So uh, one of the crises was lying in wait for our political system, and now we must not be preoccupied by ourselves, was was how our political system should be improved and how Haredi recruitment can be increased. This is all new, and it's really wonderful that this has happened. The, um, 
the Haredi wartime mobilization and the desire to serve in the army testifies to the change that we hope will continue to grow and blossom. After the war, this will enable, I think, a historic change that lead to the healing of a difficult rift that's bedeviled Israeli society for decades. I'll be back after the break. Shalom, atem akshivim, Israel News Talk Radio. Warning, take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. We hear quite often now the two terms to describe the terrorists active against Israel. We hear about Hamas in the Gaza area, and we hear about Hezbollah on the northern border. And I think the time, at least for myself, I want to share with my listeners the difference between these groups as I understand it. The, um, now, both of these groups are supported by Iran, and the question is, what are the differences between them? They're called resistance forces by the uh, Iranians. The uh, Iran supports Islamic terrorist groups like Hamas, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hashd al-Sha'abi in Iraq, the Houthis in Yemen, and all other kind of uh, terrorist groups in Syria. These terrorist groups receive, receive financial and military support from Iran, and Iran has been perpetrating and extending conflicts in this region. Now, I want to say, what I understand the difference between Hamas and Hezbollah, and I want to explain it to the listeners, because you read about this and hear about this in the news all the time. Hamas and Hezbollah are two Islamic terrorist organizations that have different origins, different goals, and different ways of operating, but they share certain similarities and have some connections primarily based on the fact that they hate Israel and they want to destroy Israel. That's what they have in common. Both Hamas and Hezbollah are Islamic terrorist organizations that emerged in the late 1980s and early 1990s with a shared goal of attacking Israel and having influence in the Middle East. They are both influenced by Shia Islam, and keep in mind that most of the uh, Islamic countries, like Saudi Arabia, are Sunni Islam, whereas uh, Iran is Shia Islam. Shia, these are two different forms of Islam, Sunni being the largest. 
but they all share anti-Israel and anti-Western ideologies. Hamas and Hezbollah are united in their opposition to Israel, and they keep engaging in terrorist conflicts in Israel. They both view Israel as a hostile state, and they seek to eliminate Israel. Both terrorist organizations receive significant support from Iran, which is a Shia theocracy. Iran provides financial, military, and logistical support to Hamas in Gaza and Hezbollah in Lebanon. Iran sees them as important as the terrorist Islamic organization that they sponsor called the Revolutionary Guard Corps, sometimes known as the IRGC, and these are all in the struggle against Israel. While they operate in different regions, Hamas, Hamas primarily in Gaza and Hezbollah in Lebanon, they have exchanged military tactics and strategies. They share experience in guerrilla warfare, rocket attacks, terrorist activities against Israeli targets. Hezbollah has a well-established military structure and experience and reportedly provided training and assistance to Hamas in terms of military tactics and organization. Both groups, Hamas and Hezbollah, received funding and support from Iran. Hamas and Hezbollah share some common ideological goals, including Islamic terrorism against Israel. They cooperate on certain diplomatic and political fronts, especially within the context of the conflict against Israel. So it's important to note, by the way, while they share some commonalities and receive support from similar sources, they remain terrorist organizations with their own specific objectives and operational areas. <coughs> Hamas primarily focuses on the Palestinian territories, especially the Gaza Strip, while Hezbollah is based in Lebanon. Hezbollah and Hamas are in a unified front against Israel. Iran's influence in the Middle East has been the subject of global interest and concern for many years. And one aspect of this influence, this vicious influence, is support for various terrorist organizations like Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And they share a common goal of opposing Israel. Now, the possibility of Iran pushing Hezbollah to join forces with Hamas in a war against Israel is pretty clear. The potential implications of such an alliance between Hamas and Hezbollah on the geopolitical landscape of this region has to be taken into consideration. Iran has long been a supporter of both Hezbollah and Hamas, and as I said, providing them with financial, military, and ideological support. 
Hezbollah, based in Lebanon, has a history of terrorist conflict with Israel and is considered a powerful terrorist militia. Hamas, based in the Gaza Strip, has, of course, engaged in, in terrorist acts against Israel and has strong ideological ties with the Iranian regime. Iran supports both Hezbollah and Hamas because their share objective in destroying Israel and their ideological alignment as Islamic terrorist militant groups. Their common goal of governing Palestinian territories and their active activities against Israel are served as the basis for collaboration. Now, Iran may see potential benefits in encouraging Hezbollah to cooperate with Hamas. Hezbollah possesses military capabilities and expertise, and joining with Hamas would create a more potent and coordinated front against Israel. Since an alliance between Hamas and Hezbollah would amplify their ability to launch coordinated attacks, to engage in terrorist warfare, and escalate the conflict with Israel. Iran's interest in promoting a united front against Israel is pretty much driven by its desire to establish Iran's regional dominance and reduce Israel's influence in the Middle East. Encouraging cooperation between Hezbollah and Hamas allows Iran to further its ambitions and strengthen its position as a major player in the region. So an alliance between Hezbollah and Hamas could lead to a significant escalation of this conflict. The increased military capabilities and strategic coordination could result in more intense and prolonged conflicts causing human suffering and instability in this region. So if they really made an alliance, it could shift the balance of power in the Middle East and uh, it, it pretty much challenged the, the existing political dynamics. Israel and its allies may, be, may need to reassess their strategies, the collaborative front between Hamas and Hezbollah. So the United Front in Israel could undermine negotiations and dialogue, and uh, in, in general, it is bad. Now, the idea of uh, Hezbollah and Hamas forming a joint alliance against Israel is a possibility, and the implications are substantial. Iran's support for these groups and potential encouragement of this alliance underscores the complex dynamics in the Middle East. So this is a very difficult area of the world. With Professor Ahrens, who I worked for at Israel Aircraft Corporation, and there was the Israel's foreign minister, had a favorite saying, the Middle East is not the Middle West. 
So that's uh, that's what the situation. I I try to explain to the uh, listeners the difference between Hezbollah and Hamas as I learned about it. The truth of the matter is, I don't see much of a difference. But uh, one operates primarily in Gaza, that's Hamas. The other primarily in Lebanon. They're both supported by Iran. And this is the danger, among others, that Israel is facing. So I just sort of summarized what I just said, try to give the listeners an understanding of what Hamas and Hezbollah are. They're both bad. By the way, it's interesting to note that while many countries have designated Hamas as a terrorist organization, others have not. Those who have not designated Hamas as a terrorist organization include Switzerland, Norway, India, Turkey, and the Philippines. In 2018, an American resolution at the UN Security Council to label Hamas as terrorism was supported only by the United States, with the European countries abstaining. In in light of Hamas's sadistic atrocities, there really can no longer be any excuse for not designating Hamas as a terrorist entity. So uh, I just thought the listeners would like to know, these are the, there's a number of countries that, uh, that don't recognize Hamas as a terrorist organization, and the UN also has lagged in doing this kind of action, which was really shameful, really shameful. And since we're talking about countries that uh, support Hamas or don't um, consider Hamas a terrorist organization, that brings up another subject, which is pro-Palestinian protests in Paris, Brussels, and in Brooklyn. Thousands of people waving Palestinian flags and chanting Gaza Paris is with you gathered last week in Paris for the first pro-Palestinian demonstration allowed by police since the uh, since October 7th. Around 15,000 people turned out in Paris at the Place de République, according to police figures, to express solidarity with Palestinians and call for a ceasefire. The same thing happened in uh, Brussels with about 12,000 people. So you had 15,000 people in Paris supporting the terrorists. You had 12,000 in Belgium supporting the terrorists. In New York City, there was a clash between pro-Palestinian protesters and the New York Police Department. It ended up with 19 adults and three juveniles charged last week. The protest was on Fifth Avenue near 72nd Street in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, which is an enclave for a large Arab population in Brooklyn. 
and it happened twice in two days. And the police took pro-Palestinian demonstrators into custody. The police said the following, and I, I read what the police report said. Officers were struck by flying debris, which included eggs, fireworks, and bottles. Officers responded to this disruptive behavior and attempted to restore order by taking into custody those responsible. In the course of doing so, the, um, an offer was seen in the videos reacting to active resistance by criminals within the crowd. The New York Police Department encourages peaceful protests, but will not condone our officers being subjected to any form of violence. That's what the police said. And it turns out that 10 men and 6 women were issued summaries for disorderly contact. They, um, so, and then two minors were given juvenile reports. This protest against Israel in Brooklyn was organized by a group called Within Our Lifetime, calling for an end to airstrikes and civilians in Gaza and a halt for U.S. funding for Israel, uh, the military. And uh, a couple of days later, hundreds of pro-Palestinian protesters gathered in Midtown, New York, to demand a ceasefire. And it turned out that 139 of them were taken into police custody for blocking traffic, and they were later released for uh, disorderly conduct summonses. All this is according to the New York Police Department. So. Here you have Paris, Brussels, Brooklyn, and New York, the home of uh, tens of thousands of uh, pro-Palestinian uh, protesters. So uh, that is not a, I mean, I, I really don't know what to say. I'm just reporting the facts. It's getting more and more dangerous uh, for Jews, I think, in Brooklyn. Another item which uh, has to do with the attitudes towards what's happening in Israel, more than half of Democrats in the U.S. House of Representatives sent a letter to President Joe Biden endorsing his policy of backing Israel in its war against Hamas. And uh, the, 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 what, but the parties left didn't get involved. And the signatories supporting Israel, Democrats, included several outspoken critics of Israel, as well as all 24 Jews in the House Democratic Caucus. They wrote the following. We stand with you, President Biden, in supporting Israel, are ready to provide whatever assistance to the state of Israel and the people of Israel, what they need to defend themselves to ensure that hostages return home and those who perpetrated these crimes against humanity are held accountable. Their letter concludes with the usual thing, saying that any long-term solution means diplomatic and not military, which is really uh, meaningless. What I found interest is that 
As I said, more than half of House Democrats endorsed Biden's stance on Israel and war. The question is, why is the number only more than half? Why didn't all the Democrats endorse Biden's stance on the war that's uh, happening here? When I was a kid, just about everybody I knew voted for the Democrats. All the Jews, when I was a kid, were Democrats because they thought Roosevelt had saved the world and had saved Jewry. Uh, they didn't know a lot about really what had happened during the Second World War. Uh, I, I, when I was a kid, I can honestly say I didn't know even, even any Jews who voted Republican. I remember we were very surprised when the senator from New York was a Republican. I never, I never had heard of a, a Jewish Republican. Now, as I say, half the House of Democrats endorsed Biden's stance, and where are the rest of the Democrats in this, what's happening in this war against Israel? At any rate, I'll be back after the break. Be smart. Listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work, and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're back with Jay Shapiro. You know, it's interesting. During the course of the week, I gather information that I want to use on my program, and uh, I generally hope that I have enough information to fill up a program. This time around, what's happening now here in Israel, I have probably enough no, I have enough notes on my desk to fill up probably two programs, and I have to choose which ones I want to use that I think that they will be most interesting to the listeners and the kind of things they might not find on other uh, news programs. So I want to start this part of the program. It's something that caught my eye because I myself happened to be a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. Now, there's no doubt that Jewish donors have long been the most generous benefactors of American universities. There are a number of buildings in the University of Pennsylvania that are named after uh, Jews who give a lot of money to the university. For example, is in the Annenberg Center. Annenberg, I think, was the owner of uh, one of the Philadelphia newspapers. Now, the, these, these very same campuses the, have become centers of anti-Israel and anti-Semitic activity and uh, it's even raised safety concerns for Jewish students. All this has happened within the last, I'd say, 20 years. There are, there are professors and teaching assistants who intimidate or bully uh, Jewish uh, students, and uh, they reading lists of skewed and twisted information about Israel, they pass resolutions in support of uh, efforts to boycott Israel, and anti-Israel groups and speakers are invited, 
And uh, they even read some of these events, these anti-Israel and anti-Jewish events get university funds. And of course there is anti-Semitic violence and vandalism uh, targeting the Jewish student centers like Hillel and dormitories with large Jewish populations. So a lot of the Jewish students are reporting that they are afraid. So uh, it's, it's interesting. interesting. Uh, so uh, now it appears that there's, there's a result to what's happening. Last week, the leaders of something called the Wexner, Wexner Foundation, W-E-X-N-E-R, was founded by a billionaire named Leslie Wexner and his wife. They announced they would be severing long-standing ties with Harvard University and its Kennedy School of Government due to what they called the dismal failure of Harvard's leadership to take a clear and unequivocal stand against the barbaric murders of innocent Israeli civilians by terrorists. Uh, the, um, the, uh, the, uh, this Leslie Wexler was interviewed on television, I heard the interview, and he said he's been giving millions to Harvard University and now he's cutting it off. Since then, the donors to Harvard and other universities have announced they're stopping their financial support and withdrawing from the boards of these institutions due to the administrator's failure to forcefully condemn what happened here in Israel. Now, it's interesting. I want to point out one name because I saw it in the paper and I think it's worth mentioning this. The former Utah governor, his name is John Huntsman, who's not Jewish, announced that his foundation would cease giving the University of Pennsylvania any money to what he had a foundation that gives money to, to the University of Pennsylvania, where he went to school. He, he, he said he's stopping the funding because of the silence following Hamas pogrom. He wrote the following, Moral relativism has fueled the university's race to the bottom and sadly now has reached a point where remaining impartial is no longer an option. University silence in the face of reprehensible and historic evil by Hamas against the people of Israel is a new low. Silence is anti-Semitism, unquote. That is by the former Utah governor who is not Jewish. Now, it's obvious that what happened here on October 7th has deeply affected Jews and others around the world, including many who previously were not particularly attached to Israel. The uh, now donors are withholding the funds from universities due to their response to what happened there. Many of these donors are Jewish, although they hold a range of religious beliefs, and not all have a history of being active in pro-Israel causes, but they read and they hear the news and hear what happened. 
So for many Jews, this is a really important moment. For many years, universities have enjoyed the benefit of Jewish donors while doing very little to ensure that Jewish students are in an academic environment where they feel safe and they don't have to feel intimidation. Directly or indirectly, Jewish donors have been paying the salaries of professors who bully Jewish students, funding students' groups and engage in anti-Zionist anti-Semitism, and subsidizing events in which the Jewish state and its supporters are demonized. So, in the aftermath of what happened here on October 7th, more and more Jewish donors are putting their money where their mouths are, making clear they will no longer stand to see their alma maters transform into hotbeds of anti-Jewish hate. So what happened here several weeks ago as having an effect on the contributions of Jewish donors to major universities in the United States. So what happened here several weeks ago is a turning point in history in many, many areas, not the least of which, which I guess came to me really as a surprise, is the, the funds given to major universities in the United States by Jewish donors. They've awakened to the fact that their being Jewish means more to them than their being the graduates of some fancy university in the United States. So that is, to me, I think, good news, really good news, that their Jewishness means a lot to them. Here's another item under the headlines, one of the effects of what's happening here. The... Uh, it has to do with Starbucks coffee stores, which just I found uh, interesting. In, in the Starbucks is a big coffee chain, and they became embroiled in a controversy last week. What happened was the Orthodox Jewish Chamber of Commerce threatened a boycott over alleged uh, allegations that certain Starbucks union stores were openly supporting Hamas. So. Uh, the, chambers, the, the Jewish Chamber of Commerce issued a statement that said, drinking a cup of Starbucks is drinking a cup of Jewish blood. That's a pretty strong statement. So what happened was a guy named Howard Schultz, who is the former CEO, CEO of Harbor, Starbucks, promptly reached out to a representative of the Orthodox Jewish Chamber of Commerce and he reinforced Starbucks' unwavering stance of, uh, against any store employees advocating for Hamas. A number of leaders of various communities around the world have come to Israel in the last few weeks. They include Romania, Germany, Britain, United States, of course, Italy, Cyprus, the Netherlands, and Greece. Now, the, the last one to arrive was the French President Emmanuel Macron, and he came here to show solidarity like the others did. These, uh, the visit of all these various leaders 
have significance in the visits themselves. The very act of coming here during a time of war is on its own seen as a show of solidarity that undoubtedly has an impact on public opinion in their countries. And it's been pointed out that the visit of Macron from France is particularly interesting because France has a substantial Muslim population and a vocal far left that strongly supports the Palestinians. His visit was preceded in Paris, as I mentioned before, by a sizable pro-Palestinian protest, and there was a lively debate in the National Assembly in Paris about the crisis several days ago. The Israel enjoyed broad support in the National Assembly after what happened, with the exception of the far-left group called France Unbowed. And uh, at the exception of that party, which refuses to refer to Hamas as a terrorist organization, instead calling it a resistance group. That party's failure to condemn Hamas is causing friction with the mainstream French left-wing parties, which are called the Greens and the Socialists. So, uh, of course, Macron was here now while I'm making this uh, program. He's, of course, going to add his voice to those calling for Israel to abide by international law and should minimize civilian casualties. Israel does not have to be told to do that. It's what we do. So anybody calling for Israel is to, to abide by international law is saying something very patronizing, as if Israel needs to be reminded by the world to abide by international law and not harm civilians. Everyone, everyone knows that Israel does its best to avoid civilian casualties. So the, the, their public calls on this matter is pretty much for domestic consumption back in their home countries. Israel doesn't have to be told. It allows these foreign leaders to defend their diplomatic support for Israel by saying they also urge the Israelis not to harm civilians. So uh, there, there were a couple issues about his uh, coming here to Israel, which uh, is a little bit different than other foreign leaders. Uh, this is uh, there, uh, the there's the the um, the Islamic terrorists are also a problem in France. On October 13th, a school teacher was stabbed to death by an Islamic radical in northern France. And three years ago, another teacher was beheaded by terrorists because he showed caricatures of Mohammed. So the French have also known and felt Islamic fanaticism. And by coming here, I think that Macron is sending a signal back home that he will not sit quietly. 
and he's uh, coming here full of concern for the situation in Lebanon, a country in which France has strong historical links. Lebanon is associated with uh, France, like the Palestinian mandate was associated with England. So it's felt, and I saw an expert say this, Macron has some influence over the Christian and Sunni populations Lebanon and a bit of influence over the Druze. He carries very little influence with the Shia community, community, which is represented by Hezbollah, which is the major terrorist group in Lebanon. So uh, the, the people expect the head of the French government become the, involved in a crisis when Lebanon is concerned, and since there's a good possibility that Israel will take action against the terrorist Hezbollah in Lebanon, the French are concerned on what their position will be. It's also, by the way, true that France has interest in, in Algeria and Tunisia, Morocco, and uh, where there today public sentiment against Israel. The comments that he will likely make in Israel about easing the humanitarian crisis in Gaza and calling on Israel not to harm civilians are meant not to tell Israel what to do. Israel doesn't have to be told not to harm civilians. What he's trying to do is get a message to these other countries that, that, that he is against harming civilians. He wants that message to be heard in Algeria and Tunisia and Morocco. Now, the, uh, unlike the United States, where it has considerable leverage over Israel because of all of its support, uh, and unlike Germany, with which Israel has a long-standing security relationship, and unlike the British, who dispatched surveillance aircraft and two Royal Navy support ships to the eastern Mediterranean, France really has no leverage in Jerusalem. They don't. So why did Macron, Macron come here? <clears throat> because to not come now, even though all those other leaders did, would send a message that Europe is divided on this matter between the Anglo-German axis and a French-Spanish one. No one is expecting the Spanish Prime Minister to come show his support any more than one expect the Prime Minister of Ireland to come in to support. See, uh, so Macron's visit is something that he's doing for his diplomatic relations with the Muslim countries, and apparently to send a calming message to France's Jewish community. Now, that Jewish community in France has suffered from Islamic terrorism in the recent past, more than any other country in Europe, and it's supposed to reassure them to see the president, their French president in Israel taking a strong stand against this type of terror. So these, these things are complicated. The reason why people come here is not just to so show support for Israel, but it has to do with the, own, the electorate in their native countries. And as I said a moment ago, vis-a-vis -vis the United States, the fact that only a little half of the Democrats in Congress, the House of Representatives supported Israel, 
says something about the Democratic Party in the United States. So as I said at the beginning, I have a tremendous number of notes on my desk to use on this program. So I, I chose to pick a few of them, and things are happening so fast here in Israel that was as I gather information for each program, that information is, is overtaken the next day by other information that's more up to date. If I had a daily program, things would be easier, but I have to pick for what I have in front of me and hope that it's meaningful for the listeners. You can get all kind of daily information from Israel on all the other networks, and I have to choose what I feel is important that is pretty much under the headlines. You you don't see it other places so that the listeners will learn something from my program that they can't get from uh, from other sources. So that's my job, and it's it's a tough one, I have to admit, but I hope that I've been able to give the listeners some of the things that are information about things that are happening under the headlines. So until next time, let's hope things get quiet. The chances they get quiet are very slim. So let's pray that the good people here, the good people of Israel, come out of what's going to happen safely and soundly. Soundly. This is until next time. Jay Shapiro signing off.